we're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is continuing in our series in the book of Esther, uh, Esther chapter 3 and chapter 4. Do follow with me uh, in the ESV. There are church Bibles at the back. Do use the index page to find out where we are. And we're going to start with Esther chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. <coughs> After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have ch charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. <coughs> a copy of the documents was to be issued at a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the king of Susa was thrown into confusion. 
When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn that this was, what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. As we start, just to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. Do so make use of that. Some people find it helpful to make notes to steady their thinking. And at the end, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments uh, uh, on what we've been uh, looking at. So bear that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign. And we pray, therefore, as your people, that we would vindicate these characteristics in our response to your word, that we would listen attentively, that we would trust it as a good word from you, our creator and redeemer, and that we would live under it as obedient to you who is rightly sovereign over us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
The question of guidance is a very relevant one for the Christian. That's because not only does the Christian have to make countless decisions, like everybody else, but the Christian wants to make such decisions in a way that's pleasing to God. And this morning we have the opportunity to consider the decision that Esther faced and what, if any, principles we can discern for how we think about guidance and decision-making. One of the features of the book of Esther is that throughout there is an absence of the mention of God. Will such absence mean that God is absent from her decision-making? How can God guide when his voice is not heard? Esther 3 introduces Haman, and right from the start, we get the impression that Haman and Mordecai have history. Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman or pay homage to him, chapter 3, verse 5. And Haman, we're told, in chapter 3, verse 10, was the enemy of the Jews, of which Mordecai is one. Now, the background to all this is Exodus 17 and 1 Samuel 15. The Amalekites attacked Israel in the wilderness in Exodus 17. They were enemies of God and his people. Agag was the king of the Amalekites, and he was defeated by Saul and put to death by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. And this background explains the enmity between Haman, the Agagite, and Mordecai, the Jew. Okay. Now, Haman's response to Mordecai is revealing. We might expect Haman to deal only with Mordecai. But have a look again um, at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down, or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman is not content to kill only Mordecai, but seeks instead to destroy all of Mordecai's people. It would seem that to kill only Mordecai was beneath him. Mordecai touched him in a vulnerable spot, and to deal only with him would reveal that what Mordecai did mattered to him. So instead, he resolves to dispose of Mordecai indirectly. He seeks a way to destroy the whole Jewish people. It would seem that it was because of Haman's pride that Mordecai that to kill Mordecai, he would do so via an indirect route. Now, before we go any further, it's worth pausing to see the significance of what is happening here. So Haman is not just a baddie in the story, but he is the enemy of the Jews. And this belongs to a biblical category, the category of enemies. 
They're enemies of God because they contest his rule and plan. They're frequently described as enemies of God's king. And the enemies of God's king are the enemies of God. And these enemies have one purpose, to destroy God's king. And by association, they are enemies of God's people. In seeking to destroy them, they oppose, oppose God's purpose for them. Now, this not only adds gravitas to what Haman is doing, but it also relates these events to God and his plan. Although there's no mention of that here. Haman obtains the king's permission to kill the Jews in verses 7 to 11 and issues the edict in verses 12 to 15. And the edict is an order for the destruction of all the Jews and the plundering of their property on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. Now, one of the things to notice, for us to notice here, is how he intends that they're going to be destroyed. So have another look at verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. It would seem that Haman... Okay, will use the general populace to destroy the Jews. Motivated not only by racial hostility, but also the prospect of plunder, the peoples will act. And this explains the delay of 11 months to permit ample time to prepare for the attack. Now, the thing about an edict is, if it's written by the king and sealed with the king's ring, it cannot be revoked. And this is all important for us to understand, for it prepares us as to what it will take for the Jews to be delivered. If the problem is this binding edict that the peoples will destroy the Jews then what will be required of a solution? Now, there is a further observation to make concerning the significance of this edict, and it's tied to the significance of the Jews in this phase of redemptive history. For what would happen if at this point all the Jews were destroyed? If all the Jews died then the promises of God would die with them. And this is a significant biblical theme. It began with Abraham. It was to Abraham that the promise of God was given. And the problem with Abraham not having any offspring was that the promise would die with Abraham. And this becomes a theme in the book of Genesis. 
Abraham's son Isaac. And the significance of him not having a wife or having a wife that is barren similarly threatens the promise. And similar again to the need for Jacob to have offspring. Now, by the time we get to Esther, the promise of God lies with the nation of Israel. The survival, then, of the Jews in this phase of redemptive history is critical to the promise of God. For it's from this nation that God will bring about his creation purpose. And so I take it that this is the magnitude that we have with this edict from Haman. Not that he was necessarily aware of it. But the total destruction of the Jews at this point, where would that leave the promise of God and the hope of the world? Not only does that have implications for the salvation of the world, but also that God's creation will come to ruin. So, do you see, if Mordecai was killed, then that would be one thing. But the annihilation of the Jews, where does that leave the promise? Well, in all of this, there's something that the readers know that Haman doesn't know. And that is that the Jews have an inside lady, Queen Esther. If you remember, Mordecai's advice has been that Esther should not make known that she was a Jew, chapter 2, verse 10. And so Haman is clueless. Aware of the fate that the Jews now face, Mordecai discerns that Esther might be a queen for a reason and that she would go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. Chapter 4, verse 8. Initially, Esther objects to Mordecai. And her hesitancy is not only because she doubts she would survive to make the appeal, but also she questions the effectiveness of her appeal to the king, since her favour with him is apparently at this point at a bit of a low ebb. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let's pick it up from verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Okay, let's just walk through what's been said here. So in verse 12, Mordecai talks about risk. If Esther doesn't appeal to the king, she isn't safe. Because if the Jews are destroyed, it may well come out that she is also a Jew and she will perish with everyone else. There's a danger staying out of the king's presence as entering the king's presence. Therefore, to do nothing isn't safe. And I think that's quite an important principle for us here. 
I came across it explicitly. I first came across it explicitly when I was at college, and a friend uh, gave me uh, the book Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And in it, there was a chapter on risk. And from what I remember, the basic premise of the chapter was really quite simple. You can't avoid risk. And because of that, avoiding risk cannot be the ultimate framework in which to make decisions. Now, for those of us who are risk-averse, it's a very liberating truth, because rather than making decisions on the basis of risk and avoiding risk, which you can't, it actually frees us to make decisions on a different axis, a different framework, and one that's simply about avoiding risk. Well, this leads us nicely on to verse 14 and the framework that Mordecai employs. Here we learn that Mordecai has confidence that God will deliver the Jews. Notice that it's a very particular confidence that he has. It's not a confidence that Esther will be the deliverer, because he goes on to say that if it's not from her, then it will be from somebody else. But his confidence is, one way or the other, the Jews will be delivered. They won't be destroyed. Now, it's not made explicit here where his confidence comes from. But I take it that as we've been thinking about the wider biblical story, it's because at this point, they have the promise. God's purpose for creation rests with the Jews. And it's interesting that as we think about their decision-making process, while there is, whilst there is no voice from God, God nevertheless speaks or has spoken this promise of which informs a course of action. They provide an alternative access, which is not simply what avoids risk, but what is in line with the plan of God. And then in verse 15, in Mordecai's reflections, he discerns God's providence. I mean, he's not sure, he doesn't know, but he wonders if it is God's providence that Esther is queen for this purpose. He doesn't say she is, he just asks the question, could it be? As they look back at what has happened, it's one of the things that we've been reflecting on as we've been reading through Esther, that although God is absent by name in the account, he's not been absent. They've no promise that the queen will be successful. Rather, they have the promise of deliverance and discern that this could be the means. Well, with these things in her head, she decides to appeal to the king. She resolves to ask him even if she ends up perishing. We began by thinking about how guidance is a big issue for us, not least because of all the decisions that we have to make at various points in our lives, but also the fact that we want to make decisions in a particular way as God's people, Christians. And what we've seen exemplified in this account of Esther is a very important principle. And that is 
to act in line with God's plan. And here we observe a particular type of acting where the immediate outcome is not known. Consider for a moment when we look at Esther 5 next week that we read that Esther appeals to the king. The king is displeased and has her head chopped off. Had she made a poor decision to go to the king? It's a helpful scenario to consider because Esther just doesn't know that that won't happen. In her mind, that could well happen, and she's in some ways prepared for that. But what she does know, she has an understanding of God's purpose and therefore acts in line with it, trusting God. Of course, there are a number of decisions that we can make that we do know the outcome. We know that if we put our confidence in Christ, he will forgive us. We know that as we persevere to the end, we will receive the crown of life. And actually, we live in a phase of redemptive history where the kind of thing that Haman was attempting simply can't happen anymore. God's promises can't be threatened in this way anymore because the promises have been fulfilled. The Christ has come. He has already made purification for sins. And he has now sat down at the right hand of the Father. There isn't that same tension. Yet this principle of acting in line with God's plan remains fundamental to how God guides us and therefore to the decisions we make. Let me pray. I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Henry Father, thank you for the example of uh, Mordecai and Esther as they face uh, this decision and your voice uh, is not heard and nor do they have a promise that the queen will be successful in her appeal. Nevertheless, they know you and your plan and they act in line with it, trusting that you will uh, work all things according to your plan for the world. Father, we thank you that it's such a helpful principle for us. And pray, please, as we consider issues of guidance and the decisions that we make, and in wanting to make them in a way that's pleasing to you, that we might be those who not only know you, but act in line with that revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I mentioned at the start an opportunity for questions. If you don't know the story, you'll have to wait till next week to find out what actually happens to Esther. Nathan. 
Okay, thanks. Just to clarify, when you say there's lots of different voices, what do you mean? Okay. Gotcha. Thanks. So the question is, if this is in principle of acting in line with God's plan, bearing in mind that people might have all kinds of ideas about what that plan is, where do we... Um, yeah, how can we... What help can we get with that? Yes. So I think... Well, I think... I mean... I mean, the, the short answer is um, get to know God um, through the revelation he's given to us um, in the Bible. So in other words, keep coming each week and you'll get to know God and his plan for the world. Um, I mean, I think the Hebrews uh, reading was an interesting one and also looking at that in growth group on Wednesday, the fact that there is this, although he has spoken many times in various ways, one of the comments about that was is that if he's continuing to speak it means the revelation is not complete there's more to come and there is this unfolding of the plan and purposes of god you know you might go to genesis 12 genesis 12 yeah but then you go to 2 samuel 7 yeah it's 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 always been um expanded on but then the thing that the new testament celebrates in particular the writer of the hebrew says is that whilst he has spoken many times in many ways in the past He's now spoken by his son, singular. And that's a completeness to that revelation. So we have this privilege that actually the mystery, as we've been singing, the mystery's been revealed. God's now brought us into his council and he's revealed everything. We know, um, and interesting, we often talk about that as being a position of great privilege, but Hebrews actually says there's a warning here because with that greater revelation, there are greater consequences if we don't pay attention to it. So I think it's one of these things that's just not rocket science. And it's a thing I just think, I don't know why people find it so difficult, because you just have to go back to what God has said and pay attention to that, um, to that plan. And I do think, I mean, there are some helpful resources to mention a few. And I think the plan of God, invariably, invariably, the plan of God starts with God, okay? So it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a huge um, a framework from creation to new creation. Rather than thinking the plan of God is God's plan for my life, it actually starts with the bigger plan. There's some great resources. So um, uh, what's it called? God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts helps you to see how the whole Bible fits together as the one plan of God and how we relate to that. Another great book, actually one of my favourites, I think it's, if I had to pick one of the books that's been really helpful pastorally with people is Guidance in the Voice of God by Philip Jensen. And he looks at the plan of God and then helps you to think through what acting in line with that plan is. And he kind of breaks it down. So he has like three categories of, um, to break down decision-making into issues of matters of righteousness, matters of good judgment. Good, might I say righteousness? Okay, triviality, good judgment, righteousness. Yeah, so Michael's, Michael's a man who's read this book. Um, and at the end, you've got case studies on things like marriage, church, and work. So that's, that really kind of gets down into it. I think it's such a good book, because once you've got that clear in your own head, you're, it really equips you for decision-making for the rest of your life, and not only you, but the people around you.
Susie. Yeah, it's a fascinating question, which is like, there's this idea that Mordecai, which then Esther seems to share, a, a confidence that God will deliver the Jews. Where does that confidence come from? And you've cited two very plausible examples of Genesis 12, where the promises are first given to Abraham of a people, land, blessing. Then 2 Samuel 7, the promise of a Davidic kingdom that will last forever. And therefore, you know, there's, there's these things. So, <clears throat> I mean, again, <laughs> the short answer is uh, no idea, um, <clears throat> because we're not told. And um, it's also interesting. Well, so yeah. So, I mean, one thing's interesting. I think Tom mentioned this in the first one, a little bit of context. So we're kind of around the time of um, Ezra, I think he said, that sort of time. And I suppose at this point, if we've got uh, Jews have been in exile for 70 years, but the promise was after those 70 years that they would return to Jerusalem. And um, so I guess then you know, it would be peculiar if at this point if you look at all of Israel's history, you go all the way to Abraham. Abraham didn't have any offspring. It threatens the promise. Sarah, um, they then conceive, goes on, you know, threatened by Pharaoh. You know, they survive that in the wilderness. You know, basically, they've gone from one threat to another. They've gone into uh, exile in Babylon to come back, and then they're squashed by Haman. kind of feels like it doesn't really makes sense. So there may be a sense of in return from exile that they are thinking there's a purpose for this. It's not a purpose then to be uh, defeated. Um, I mean, the other thing, Susie, I think it's interesting is like, we know more than them. So it's the kind of thing like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Mordecai could just think you know, God's delivered the Jews in the past, he'll deliver them again. They're quite quite how good his biblical theology is and how much he's put it all together. Um, and it may be that the author of Esther has deliberately missed those things out because he sees warrant in a book that has no mention of God and his promises to, to kind of, which has been interesting for us to be thinking like, oh, that you know, he's, he's kept it back from us so that we're just thinking, ah, 
Even though he's not mentioned, even though he's not spoken, he has spoken, and there's his acting in line. So there could be a sort of a rhetorical advice there. Um, I suspect, actually, Susie, in asking the question is it's just a very fruitful question. To spend the rest of the day thinking about all the places that they could go is you know, in itself a, you know, a useful activity because we're, we're thinking about how does the Bible fit together, how does it all join up, where would that confidence be? Is that okay? Yeah. The, the commentary was absolutely... I won't even tell you what the commentary said on this. It's absolutely no... Nothing. So, yeah, you're, you're ahead of the commentary. I'm going I'm I'm to pen in Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, etc. Time for more? Yes, Michael. Yeah, very much so. I, I, let me just try and, re, I'll try and repeat what you said for the recording, and then I'll, I'll probably just, I should just stick with it as it is. We're going to have a mic where we can pass you around. So this idea that the great encouragement this is, as we look at God's providence with Esther, in terms of um, how he is working all things to deliver the Jews, how that God's not changed, so therefore we can have that same confidence in a world where you know, we've got through three prime ministers and however many months, you know, all kinds of things that's going on in the world where there's change. Um, but actually, we're learning that God is involved in his creation and is working all things in accordance with his plan. But your second point, I do think, is crucial. I think this is where we can miss a trick if we just think we're back in the time of Esther, that we're now at the point where the promises have been fulfilled. Um, I mean, a classic example was in the book of Daniel. People say, like, oh, we're like Daniel, we're living in a foreign land. Um, but actually, we're not, because Daniel was awaiting for the kingdom of God to come. And the kingdom of God has now come in the person of Christ. Um, and therefore, uh, there's a, I think uh, Tom touched it last week with Romans 5, there's the how much more argument God's already done the most difficult thing. And actually, the, more, the most difficult thing was dealing with our sin, providing atonement, because that cost him the life of his son on the cross. And having done that, it'd be really peculiar for something to come along and thwart his plan now. You know, we're not expecting it. If it was going to happen, it would have happened before. Okay, so we're, there's immense confidence, despite everything that's going on, um, that um, we can... I don't know... Uh, um, I was going to say, put hairs in the chest, but every time I said that, Tom laughs. But it gives you confidence 
you know, but it really kind of thinks, I can act with God's... And it was the growth group when I mentioned it, and Tom just kept laughing. But you know the phrase, puts hairs on your chest, it gives you confidence to think, we can boldly step forward in, in acting in line with God's plan. We don't need to be hesitant, we don't need to be risk-averse, we don't need to hold back, or we can think, this is where the whole universe is going, and therefore we press on. Um, anyway. <laughs> what can you do, Tom? <laughs> you can't fire me. <laughs> um, right. Okay. Heretic device. Okay, we're gonna. I think we should just. <laughs> yeah, let's let's play a song. In a moment, we're gonna have um, sharing the Lord's supper, and this song prepares us uh, for that as the as we sing, uh, "Behold the Lamb of God." <laughs>